All right. Well, um, hey, everybody. Uh, my name's Phil. I'm one of the pastors here. We haven't had a chance to meet yet. Uh, a lot of times I'll say good morning when I'm doing the announcements, but I was on barista duty this morning. So, um, yeah, that was fun. Uh, anyway, uh, we are continuing on the series that we have been in over the past about a month now called uh, How Not to Read the Bible. And um, honestly, today, we're actually we're kind of winding down. Today is the next to last week. We're going to continue this next week, although it's kind of a little bit of the end of this series and the beginning of the next one next week. They just kind of went together that way. But we've been looking at some, some kind of problem passages because the Bible is, is great and it's full of life and it's full of wisdom. And as followers of Jesus, we believe it's God's inspired word. It's authoritative for our life. It's how we know who God is. But you guys, there's some weird stuff in there, okay? If you just like, if you just play Bible roulette and you open it up and like you point out a verse, you'd be like, what is that? Am I supposed to do this? Uh, and so we're, we've been getting some tools for how do we actually understand and read the scriptures. And we've been looking at some different things that are like, okay, how do we take this thing that's weird, that, that's strange to our modern ears? And so, I mean, we, we've looked at stuff like uh, weird Old Testament laws and slavery in the Bible. We, we've looked at the issue of kind of like the, the seeming patriarchal systems in the Bible. We looked last week at the relationship between the Bible and science or faith and science, and, and that's been good. I've been having a good time doing that. But today, um, what we're going to talk about, I think for me personally, maybe for you as well, this will be about the most difficult thing. Uh, because today, I, I, the other ones, I'm like, this is great, and I, I come to a realization and an answer, and I like this, and I feel good about this. Today, like in my mind, it makes sense. But emotionally, it's still not satisfying. And so I'm just going to say at the front, we may get done with today, and you're like, well, I still don't feel any better about that. You're not alone. Because today we're going to talk about violence in the Bible. Specifically, like, when we look at the Old Testament, and we just see so much violence. And I look at that, and I'm like, what do I do with that? Because, like, I'm, I'm very, like, borderline Christian nonviolence. I'm like, man, Jesus is about, hey, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, pray for those who persecute you, turn the other cheek, blessed are the peacemakers. And I'm like, yes, that's the Jesus that I know. And then I read about conquest. And I'm like, how do I reconcile those two things? I'm assuming I'm not the only problem or the only person who's ever been like, okay, I, I see these two. How do I make sense of these two things? As Christians, we celebrate, we worship, we, we come together to celebrate the Jesus who, who died for us and rose from the dead in this act of love and sacrifice. It talks about compassion. It talks about peace. So how do I reconcile that with what I read in the Old Testament? I'm going to talk about an approach that I think is helpful. But before we do that, I want to just briefly mention two approaches that are not helpful when it comes to, okay, I'm coming up against a passage where there's some violence happening here, and it seems like God is commanding this. Here's some unhelpful approaches. The first approach is the no apologies approach, um, the approach that basically just said, well, God said it, God commanded it, God did it, so deal with it, right? Like, so just, just get over it. He's God, and he can do whatever the heck he wants to do. Now, while I agree that God is God, and he can do whatever he wants to do, I also know that whenever I come up against passages, it's like, this doesn't seem to fit with other passages about the character of God. I should cause me to pause at least and ask some questions and think maybe I'm not understanding something right here. The other thing about the no apologies approach, and I've experienced this in my own life and people that I know, and uh, specifically, a lot of times this comes up with people who are younger. Let's be honest, like my generation, millennials, those behind us, Gen Z, and those who are coming up, the no apologies approach, whether it is in the area of violence or anything else in the scripture, like that just drives people away from the faith. Like, the amount of people that I know who's like, I used to go to, to church, I was a Christian, I had some questions, and I was basically just told, well, the Bible says it, so deal with it. 
And it's not that they're not willing to have conversations or, or dive into deeper things. I've had some incredibly deep conversations with some of like our own students saying, hey, here's what this says. What do you think about this? And, but when we have the approach of just deal with it, man, people, that turns people off so fast. And then we wonder, hey, why don't people come to church anymore? Why aren't people Christians anymore? And we say, just deal with it. And so the no apologies approach doesn't work. Here's another approach that doesn't work. The Bible is wrong approach. This is common, obviously, for those who aren't followers of Jesus. Why would they take the scripture seriously if they don't actually believe Jesus? But this is even true for some people within the church to be like, I don't know what to do with this passage, so maybe the Bible's just wrong here. And a lot of times this will be kind of played off as, uh, well, you know, these were just ancient people that were trying their best to understand God, and so they're just projecting their ancient culture on to God. And I don't think that's a good approach either. Because when we have that approach, then we, it's just like, how far does that go? How do we know anything about who God is? How do we know that the scripture that's revealed who Jesus is to us, how do I know that, that I, can, I can trust that? How, what do I do with passages then that seems like Jesus like, affirms and believes in the Old Testament? What do I do with the Apostle Paul when he says all scripture is, is God-breathed? And so like the no apologies approach, the Bible is wrong approach, these are basically two extremes on either end of the spectrum. Um, I'm going to argue that we should actually go for understand the Bible in its context approach. I know that's longer and not as fun to say. I was just going to put the no apologies approach, the Bible is wrong approach, and the right approach, but that seemed kind of arrogant, so <laughs> I'm just like, I'll just leave that out, but I said it anyway. Uh, the understand the Bible in its context, where we take some of the tools that we've been learning in this series and say, let me, let me apply this to what I'm reading. Let me apply this when I come across some of these difficult passages, and so we kind of had these kind of four guidelines in the series, the first one being that the Bible is a library, not a book. And so there's a lot of different ty- types of genres. There's a lot of different authors and different time periods. And, and when, I, when I open up some scripture, I got to know, like, what section of the library am I in? We talked about that the Bible is written for us, but not to us. That it's for us. There is wisdom. There is life. It, it reveals stuff about who we are as humans and who God is and what's wrong with the world and what the solution is. It is for us. But it was written to a group of people and groups of people living thousands of years ago in an entirely different culture. And so we got to do some cultural investigation We've got to understand context and say, okay, here's what it meant to them. Now, what does it mean to me? The third rule that we talked about was we should never read a, a verse of Scripture in isolation or just pick something out and see what, what it is. But we've got to understand it's a part of a bigger story. And then the final thing is that the entire Bible points to Jesus. The whole thing points to him. It all finds its culmination in the person of Jesus. We don't want to just take the Bible in bits and pieces. We want to understand the whole thing. And when we understand the whole thing, I think in, in the words of the folks at the Bible Project, that the whole thing is a unified story that leads to Jesus. It is a unified story that leads to Jesus, and we get that picture. When we just take bits and pieces, we get a different picture. Here's a, a fun example. is Mary Poppins. Are we familiar with Mary Poppins? Is there anybody who doesn't know who Mary Poppins is? Okay, good. I was about to be like, what's going on? And maybe, you know, maybe, okay. They, they, they recently did a remake a couple years ago, and it was pretty good. But then you got the, the original Mary Poppins. And here's the, the theme of Mary Poppins. Mary Poppins is a magical nanny. She shows up to the Banks family in their time of need. And she, she loves them, and she cares for them, and she helps the family. It is a heartwarming classical story with lots of musical interludes, okay? I'm not going to call out any names here, but there may have been somebody singing the chimney sweep song in, in the volunteer service, but just, just say. But like, it's, it's great. It's, it's a story that we love. But let's say you never, you never have seen Mary Poppins. You've never heard of Mary Poppins. You have nothing. You have no information about this. And someone tells you about it, and they're like, hey, I want to I show you about Mary Poppins. And they make a video for you. 
And they put together a couple clips and say, here's an overview of Mary Poppins. Well, you don't have to imagine because somebody's actually done that. And I'm going to show that clip. It's about a minute long. You're going to have to bear with the, uh, the video quality because it's kind of old. It's from 2006. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Technology's come a long way. Uh, but check out this trailer for Mary Poppins. Anybody want to go watch Mary Poppins now? <laughs> Somebody like, yeah, that seems way better than the original. <laughs> Listen, all of those, are all of those clips from the movie Mary Poppins? Is that what the movie Mary Poppins is about? No, that's a very, very different movie. Those are, all, those are all true in the sense that they all came from the movie, but they do not depict the character of Mary or what the plot of the movie is about. That's what we do. When we take bits and pieces of scripture, especially as it relates to this idea of like God's violence in the Bible, and we pull them out of their context, we ignore the whole story, we ignore the rest of God's character, and we say, see, here's what God is like. He's this bloodthirsty, angry God. We get scary Mary, hide your children, instead of, instead of the real thing. But when we see the whole story, we see a very different picture. We begin to catch a picture of God who is who is the same from the beginning to the end, who is described uh, in these, just, these terms that just, they bring beauty and light into our world. That there's a verse that echoes throughout the rest of scripture, and this is the first time that the character of God is actually um, explicitly stated in the scripture. We see glimpses of his character through his actions and through the things that he does, but the first time you're gonna come to a verse that says, this is what God is like. It's found in Exodus chapter 34. And this becomes the most quoted and the most reflected on verse in the Old Testament. Nearly 30 times, the Old Testament authors come back to this verse, and they either quote it or they summarize it as they talk about this is who God is. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth generation. The Lord, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding love, faithful, maintaining his love to thousands, forgiving rebellion and sin and wickedness. And we're like, yes. And like, what about that left turn about like punishing children for their kids? Like, that part's a little weird, right? Am I the only person that thinks that? No, it's a little weird. Okay, it's a little problematic. Now, this is not the point of the message. This is a little tangent but I feel like I need to kind of explain that for a second to make the rest of this make sense. Um, if you want to go deeper into this, I would highly encourage you to Google the Bible Project Character of God series, and you're going to get like 14 episodes that are all like an hour long each, and they just dissect these verses. 
There's probably about three of you in the room who sounds like, that's something I want to do, okay? <laughs> you are my people, okay? But I'm just saying, they will go into it, and they will go into detail. But as you read the, the rest of the, the, the um, examples or the times that this is quoted, the times that it is referred to throughout the Old Testament, you begin to get a different picture of that, that punishing the, the children of the third and fourth generation. What it isn't, it is not saying, hey, your parents did something wrong, so you're going to suffer generation after generation. It's not about the consequence. It's about the sin. It's saying that, hey, the, the one generation did this thing, and so did the next generation, and so did the next, and so did the next, and so did the next. Every single generation keeps on turning their backs for, on God. They keep turning away and worshiping these false gods and these false idols, and each generation will be responsible for their own actions. In fact, this becomes kind of Israel's story throughout the Old Testament. The, the immediate context of when this is, is happening is a little bit ironic. Moses is up on top of Mount Sinai. God has rescued Egypt from or Israel from Egypt, and ah, he's rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt. There we go. The words, the words, okay? And he brings them through the wilderness, and they're at the base of Mount Sinai, and Moses is up on the top of the mountain. He's getting the, the law of God, the commands of God, and the first, like, two commandments of the top ten, God's like, hey, don't have any other gods, and don't make any idols. Like, as he's saying that, the entire nation is at the base of the mountain creating a golden calf that they're going to be worshiping. And so he's like, hey, this is like the sin of this generation. They keep turning their backs on me. They keep turning to other gods. And that will be the story that plays out generation after generation after generation after generation. And so the, the idea is, hey, each generation, they're going to turn their backs, and you're going to be responsible for your own actions. But the Lord is compassionate that he is faithful, he is gracious, he is slow to anger, he is abounding in love, he maintains his love, he keeps his promises. If you will turn back to him, he will be right there waiting for you. Uh, that, that most of the time when this is quoted in the Old Testament, they're referring to the whole thing, but the thing that's most often quoted is just verse six. It's verse six. And there's this contrast that comes out of, hey, he maintains his love to thousands, and uh, the, the implication here is actually generations, thousands of generations. Some of your translations may say that. And then the, the, the punishment for sin is to the third and the fourth, to the third and the fourth generation. So you get this picture of love and promises and grace and forgiveness to thousands upon thousands upon thousands, but sin must be punished to the third and the fourth. That is, God is just and like, yeah, we're responsible for our actions, but if we turn to him, his grace and his love and his mercy and his goodness, it so far outweighs anything that our sin could possibly do. And that's the way that the Old Testament authors reflect on that verse. So often it's, it's referred to in a time whenever Israel has turned their back and, and there'll be a leader that rises up, there'll be a prophet who says, hey, remember, if we turn back to our God, he is gracious, he's compassionate, he's slow to anger, he remembers his covenant, he will be faithful. In fact, the, the, the time that I find it the most entertaining, I suppose, because it's kind of humorous, is in the book of Jonah. Jonah is this little, this little prophetical book and uh, it's, there's a lot of satire in Jonah. And God tells Jonah, hey, go to the Ninevites, who are these wicked people, like, they're like the most violent, barbaric people in the ancient world at that time, they're Israel's enemy, they're everybody's enemy, and God's like, hey, go to Nineveh and tell them about me, and it's going to be great. And Jonah's like, no, I don't want to. This is my translation, of course, the abbreviated version. But the reason he says that he doesn't want to go, Jonah's like, I don't want to go, and here's why. And he refers to this verse. He says, because I know that you're a God who's compassionate and you're loving, and you forgive. And if I go and tell them about you, they're going to turn to you, and you're going to forgive them, and I don't want you to forgive them because I don't like them very much. It's like, oh, that's just great. Because that's how we act a lot of times, right? It's like, no, I don't want them. Yeah, they, they should suffer over there. They should suffer. But here's the idea. 
the, the character of God in this verse comes through over and over and over again. The twofold nature of God, that he's loving and forgiving, yes, and he's just. That evil can't go unpunished, nor would we want it to. That God is loving and he is just. He is loving, he is just. This is the picture that we get of God throughout Scripture. This is the picture that we need to have in mind when we open up the scriptures and we're like, wait, I don't understand what's happening here. And this is hard and this is difficult. Maybe this is a violent passage or just a confusing passage. But but what do I know about God from the overarching story is that he is loving and he is just. And he has shown himself over and over again to be loving and for him to be just. So a couple of things that I would encourage us to keep in mind as we run into some of these passages that maybe are difficult where we see God either commanding violence or um, maybe doing violence, it seems, himself. Before I mention that, I do have to make note of when you see God commanding it or condoning it, because there are a lot of times in Scripture that violence is done and he had nothing to do with it. Where, where he's like, I did not tell you to do that, I did not instruct you to do that, but people get this idea on their own, like, we've got a great idea, let's destroy one another. One of the things that I actually love about Scripture is it does not sugarcoat the human condition. It shows us exactly how messed up we are. And so there will be times when, when people get this, their own idea to go and do something, but then there are those times when it seems as though God is instructing them to do violence. And so how do we interpret that? How do we approach those passages? I want to give us three things. Number one is to understand that it was during a specific time and not all the time. That the violence that you th- see throughout the Scripture does not... Uh, run from the first page to the last. That is, it is primarily focused in one area of the story. The primary area that you'll find it in, as we kind of been com- coming back to this, this uh, timeline of the biblical story throughout this series, most of it, not all of it, but most of it happens right here in Israel's story. And even within that, most of the passages of violence are found within this, this one section known as the conquest. It's when the, the nation of Israel is moving into the promised land. And God is giving Israel commands to go to battle with the people who are there in the promised land. And it's so important for us to realize, like, this is during a specific time, not all the time, because when we pull that out of its context and we just say, well, that is for everyone at all times, Christians have used that imagery and the instruction of conquest to do horrible things throughout history. To say, well, it was good enough for the Israelites and God commanded them, so, you know, inquisitions and crusades and manifest destiny and, you know, let's go. But that is abusing what Scripture is talking about. It was for a specific time and not all the time. It was about, and that that brings us to the second point, that when we see God commanding violence, it was about driving people out of a place, not wiping people out of existence. Again, most of this happens during the time of the conquest when Israel is moving into the promised land. And they're moving into the promised land, but they're not moving into the promised land alone. God, his holy presence, is going to dwell there with his people and he had a purpose for being there. That it was, it was about God moving into a place, the promised land, with a people, the nation of Israel, for the purpose. And that purpose was the purpose of bringing about the Messiah. To bring about the one who would do something for the entire world, who would redeem all things back to himself, who would give his life to pay for sin and evil. And so God's like, I am moving in with a people to this place for a purpose. And for his presence to go there, the people who were there had to be cast out. Because of their evil, because of their uh, wickedness, there was so much at stake. And God's telling his people to go into there. He's like, I don't want you falling into the way of living of these other people. And so we see instructions like this in Deuteronomy 
Deuteronomy is given as the, the nation of Israel is about to go into the promised land. It's kind of a recap of their 40 years in the wilderness. It's a retelling and a restating of some of these things. And as they're about to go in, God gives these instructions. He says, however, you must not let any living thing survive among the cities of these people that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. You must completely destroy them, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite, as the Lord your God has commanded you. So we get one of these instructions. It's like you're going into these, this land. You need to wipe everyone out. You need to drive them out. You need to destroy them. But in the next verse, he gives us the reason why. So that they won't teach you to do all of the detestable acts that they do for their gods, and you sin against the Lord your God. You have to drive these people out because they do detestable acts, and I don't want you doing the same thing. In fact, a lot of the story then of Israel unfolding is the fact that they didn't do this and they've got people living around them and they go chasing after all of these false gods and it leads to so much pain and so much death and so much destruction. It's sometimes hard for us, or maybe always hard for us to get our minds around the evil and the wickedness of the ancient world. Like, like as modern people, like we, there's a lot of bad and a lot of tragedy and a lot of violence that we see, but it does not even scratch the surface about what life was like and what was viewed as okay at that point in time. The detestable acts that are being referred to here, the way that they, these people would worship their gods was with just degrading sexual acts. They would worship by mutilating their bodies and just like cutting themselves open and crying out to their gods. They would sacrifice their children by burning them alive. But there was one particular God who comes up a lot of times in the Old Testament. His name is Molech, and they would have this big bronze statue with arms out, and they would build a fire at the base of this thing and lay their children on it. And God is telling Israel, like, that is not okay. I am not okay with that. I am not okay with people doing that. That is not my intention. I want to do something about that. I want to, I want to bring about the Messiah. I want to heal this world. I want to bring about redemption. And so we're going to start right here, and you got to get them out of there because you cannot become like them. It was about a driving of a people out, not a wiping of a people out. And then here's the third, the third point is that there is a lot, and I mean a lot, of hyperbolic ancient Near Eastern war rhetoric that is being used in these passages. So hyperbole, we, we have that in English, right, where we use this very exaggerated speech. It was a common way uh, in the ancient Near East, so Israel and their neighbors, of talking about like who was the biggest and the baddest, whose city was the best, whose army was the best, whose God was the best. And so you'll read things like, they utterly destroyed them, they completely wiped them out, they killed everything, they left none alive, right? This was language that was used. And we still use a similar language today. We use this a lot in like competition and sporting events. Oh, they killed them. Them. It's like, but did they though? Because I think they're all still alive. I mean, it's going to make some of you mad. I'm a Steelers fan, okay, right? We all know that TJ Watt is the best edge defender in the NFL. And I can say things like, he completely destroyed the offensive line. He ate them for breakfast. And you're like, he's eating people. Like, you know he's not eating people, but he did destroy them. Same kind of thing happens. Some of you are like, I'm never coming back to this church because he likes the Steelers, right? Others of you are like, this is my kind of church, okay? Isn't it fun? But this was a common way of using war language at that time. And we see this even within the pages of the Old Testament. You'll see moments where, where God's like, or, or, hey, I want you to utterly wipe them out. And it says that they completely killed them. They left none alive. And you're like, wow, that's harsh. And then like a couple of verses later, you see, there they are. They're still alive. You're like, what? I thought you utterly destroyed them. I thought you left none alive. It's this language of saying like, hey, I want them out. I want you to finish the job. I want them completely driven out of here for the purposes that I have for you. It was during a specific time. It is not a command for all time. 
It was about a driving people out of a place, not a wiping of a people out of existence. And there is a lot of hyperbolic ancient Near Eastern war rhetoric being used. When we approach passages in the scripture of, this, of violence and things that make us uncomfortable, we want to see the whole story. We want to see who God is. What do we know about him? And we want to be able to put these things into practice. And with all that said, we go back to what I said at the beginning. Putting these things into practice and understanding this does not eliminate all of the problems. It does not make us feel any better. It, it, I, I, in fact, I would... I would think there's maybe a little something wrong with us. If we went home, like, oh, I feel, it's great. I feel fine. I feel happy even about this. No, we should still go, this bothers me. We, and we, in fact, we do ourselves as followers of Jesus a disservice, and we do the world around us a disservice whenever we just try to ignore these things or sweep these things under the rug. It's like, no, like, this still bothers me, and that's okay. We come across, across like, difficult passages because at the end of the day, people did die, and that is a tragedy, young and old, people who are warriors and people who are just, you know, civilians, that happened, and we should recognize that and be okay with saying that that, that, was, that was terrible and that was difficult. But this is why knowing the whole story of Scripture is so important. This is why knowing the whole story and the overarching theme and who God has been revealed to be because, because when we encounter those difficult passages, whether or not we know the whole story will determine whether or not we see Scary Mary or Mary Poppins. Whether or not we know the whole story will determine whether or not we see a bloodthirsty, angry, violent God, or we see the God who has been revealed in Jesus Christ. We gotta know the whole story. Do I know? Do I know all the pieces? Do I know how they fit together? Seeing the whole story of scripture in its context reveals who God is. There may be passages that are still difficult, but we can know with confidence that the clearest, most perfect revelation of who God is is in the person of Jesus. And when all else fails, it goes back to what has Jesus revealed? What has his life taught me? What has his death taught me? What has his resurrection taught me? Okay, that's who our God is. Now, let me tackle these things that are difficult. Let me tackle these things that are difficult. And what we see is the story of scripture and the character of God in it from beginning to end looks like Jesus. From beginning to end, it is this beautiful coming together of love and grace and forgiveness and justice. It's love and justice, it's forgiveness and justice. And so we, we read things like we read all the way back in Exodus about God's, uh, God's character, that he's compassionate. You know, he's gracious, he's slow to anger, he's abounding in love, he's faithful, he maintains his love to thousands, he forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin. That's who God is. We, we see this getting played out real time throughout Israel's story as, they, as they, they turn their back on him and then these prophets are raised up and God's like, go tell my people, I want them to turn back to me and I love them. And so we read things like this in Ezekiel. Say to them, this is God speaking uh, to his people through the prophet Ezekiel, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they would turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die people of Israel. So you can hear God pleading with his people like, don't go down that path. Don't do that. Don't turn from me because I know when you turn from me, it leads to death. It leads to destruction. It leads to pain. It leads to suffering. Please, will you please just turn back from me? I don't want to see you hurt. I don't want to see you die. Turn from your evil ways. And then we see this just become a, a living, breathing, walking picture of this as Jesus steps onto the planet. 
And as he engages with his people, and as he, he speaks to the nation of Israel, and he goes to the people, and you can just see him pleading with the Jewish people and pleading with the religious leaders and saying, come on, you've missed it, you've missed it, turn to me, I'm the one that you've been waiting for. There's this beautiful moment where he's talking about Jerusalem. He's like, oh, daughter Jerusalem, I just, I just want to gather you under my wings like a mother hen. Like, I just, please stop turning your back on me. And that love and that compassion, not just for the Jewish people, but for all people, for all of humanity, would be the thing that sent Jesus to the cross. It would be the thing where you see the, the best picture of the love of God and the justice of God coming together in a moment to see that love and that sacrifice and that payment. And the early church grabbed onto this idea and they began proclaiming this message. Hey, you can, unlike the gods of the nations, unlike the pagan gods around them of the Roman Empire who just played with people and toyed with people and didn't care about people, they're like, no, this is who God has revealed himself to be. The God-man, Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and seen. And they would proclaim this message to the Roman Empire, and they would remind the church of these things. And I love this verse from 2 Peter. Peter comes along and says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And so Peter's like, I spent three years with him. He was my teacher. He was my rabbi. He was my Messiah. I watched him, how he loved people. I watched him give his life. I had breakfast with him on the beach after he rose from the dead. And I am telling you, here's what I know about him. He is patient. He is loving. He wants you to turn to him. That is who our God is. That is the heart of our God. That is the the picture of who he is, that he is compassionate. He doesn't just act compassionately. He is compassionate. He doesn't just act graciously. He is grace. He is forgiving. He is faithful. He is love. He is loving. He is just. Those are not things that God does. Those are overflows of who he is. That that in his essence, he is loving and compassionate and gracious and just. And And because he is those things, those things just flow out of him. Because he is those things, those things come out of him so much that he went to a cross. And again, you see the love and the justice of Jesus coming together in that moment, taking the penalty of our sin and offering us forgiveness and offering us life. That's who our God is from from beginning to end, from eternity past to eternity present. He has always been the God that looks like Jesus. He's always been the God who is loving and compassionate and gracious and just at the same time. That's who he is. And yes, there'll be those moments when we're confused. And yes, there'll be those moments of things that we're still uncomfortable with. But we can be confident in the God who's revealed himself in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you that you are the God who is loving, the God who is just. That you are the God who forgives. And we thank you that we don't have to wonder about that. We don't have to guess at that. We don't have to guess, are we okay with you? And and what's your character like? But you have revealed to us who you are through your son, Jesus. The 2,000 years ago, Lord, you took on flesh. You walked this earth. You showed us what it looks like to love God and to love others. You gave your life on a cross, paying for all of our sin and evil and wickedness so that you could give us life and forgiveness and a future. We praise you for that. We thank you that you did not stay dead. We thank you that you rose from the grave, that you are still alive. You are still in the business of changing lives. You are still in the business of displaying your love and your justice. I pray that we would be people that would just experience more and more of that each and every day of our lives. In Jesus' name.